Welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we're replaying our May 26th Market Matters event, How Does Dallas Measure Up?, which featured an in-depth conversation with CBRE President and CEO Bob Salentic. He was interviewed by DCEO Editor Christine Perez at Below Mansion during what was our first major in-person event since last year's pandemic, and boy are we glad to be back. Bob shared his experiences and perspectives on leading a global company, the state of the commercial real estate industry, and, as the event's title suggests, how Dallas measures up to other cities in which CBRE conducts its business. We're grateful to Bob and Christine for their time and would like to thank all of the members who attended the event. We'd also like to recognize our sponsors, Grant Thornton, Invoke Tax Partners, and DCEO for their support of Market Matters. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to make sure you subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Subscribing to the show is the best way to get all new episodes right to your mobile device, and following ensures you never miss an update from around the Real Estate Council. We've linked to each of our podcasts and social media handles in the show notes, so go check those out. Now, here's our Market Matters event, How Does Dallas Measure Up?, featuring CBRE President and CEO Bob Salentic right here on TrackCast. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, Diane, those applause were for you, personally. I want you to know that. Um, Welcome back. It's great to be here. Uh, Before we start, uh, before I introduce myself and make the short chairman's remarks, um, I can't think of anything more inappropriate than to not say something. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since we've been together in person. A lot of Zoom, but we haven't been together. And this organization is structured to be together. It's about people. And as much as all of us, I think, want to break off the rearview mirror and go forward right now, um, some of us are still in loss, some of us are still struggling, and so you have to say something, and I don't know what to say, I don't know how you would say it, not sure what's appropriate, but I think you have to say something. So in short, I'll say this, I think when, uh, when you're young in business, you talk about your dreams and you talk about people. And as you get older, you talk about deals. And as you start to get old, I think you return to talking about people. And I think you do that because people matter. That's what really matters in life is people. And as we get back to here together today, um, it is about people. So look around for a second. Seriously, just quietly look around. It's great to see everybody. It's great to be here. I'm glad to be here. It feels good to be here. It feels good to be alive and in person. I'm grateful that we're together. I think we all are. And personally, I will say this, and I think I actually speak for all of us. I've missed you. I think we've missed each other. And it's a great start to being together. So one more time, let's let's show some gratitude. They were nice enough to give me a long script, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, but I'm not going to read it. Um, 
And I'm going to start off by going off script. As much as we are a member-led organization and things have continued happening for our community, for our industry, based on the membership, um, through thick and thin, and it has been at times very thick, and it has been pretty thin sometimes, we've been held together by the Real Estate Council staff and the team. And even though it's not on the script because they write it, I can't imagine starting with anything other than recognizing the staff and showing our appreciation for their great work. So, as your chairman, I have a long speech and I'm not gonna give it. Um, this is market matter, <laughs> exactly. It is a big plus for that. Uh, market matters. This is a fantastic series. Um, we haven't done this and we haven't been together since March of 2020 and we've got a really great kickoff. It's a conversation with Bob Selenik. Um, Real Estate Council, we have a mission statement and we have held it through thick and thin. We have nurtured our city, our community. We have worked on our educational programs. We have continued our leadership programs and they've been fantastic. And along with those, in this last year, we added some components, maybe long overdue, but done. We commenced a diversity, equity, and inclusion program, and we did it quite thoughtfully. We didn't just jump in and check a box. We started a long process that we hope will be meaningful in our community and in our industry to show a greater depth and, and inclusion. And I'm very proud of Alex John for leading that um, and Bill Cauley for helping get it going and all the people who've done great work in that. It's been wonderful. We appreciate it. As an organization, we have been working in communities of color for decades. We've done equitable development, that's what we do. And what you hear me talking about is an increasing focus on increasing the diversity within our business, within our companies, and within our industry. So I think that's been fantastic. And during this time, we've also continued our work in our communities. It's been impactful. We've uh, focused on addressing food insecurity for those of y'all who joined us and those of y'all who didn't, we opened a food park in MLK that was fantastic. And great to, based on the great work of the ALC and Young Guns, uh, we will be opening up uh, South Point Market along with our other projects and the Catalyst Project coming up here. Um, those, you'll see the announcements come out. You ought to come out. It is unbelievable. And the attendance was fantastic. It made a difference in a place and in a time where we are supposed to make a difference. So again, to all those who drove those programs, fantastic. Okay, now I'm gonna read a little bit. I'll get in trouble if I don't do this. And I won't get the resumes right if I don't. Uh, Market Matters brings together leading firms and decision makers in the multifamily, office, retail, and industrial subsectors of our commercial real estate industry, as well as capital markets, of course, for unparalleled access to expert insights, which we will have today, networking, and high quality educational content. Before we begin, there are some thank yous. Grant Thornton and DCEO. As we all know, in nonprofits, it's hard and it's even harder in a COVID moment. 
and their generous sponsorships are part of why we get together today for the first time, and we look forward to doing this quite frequently. Um, we also have table sponsors, want to thank them, Invoke Tax Partners, I saw Ron Holmes, uh, the Holmes Firm, Hall Group, I saw Craig and his whole team over here. Thank you again for all of your support and for the table sales. Again, we really appreciate it. And now to the more bigger introduction, and as I go through this, uh, Bob and Christine, if y'all want to come up here and take a seat while I'm doing this so we can kind of keep the program rolling, keep the, keep the trains on schedule. CBRE Group Incorporated is the world's largest commercial real estate services firm. 2020 revenues were, get this, 23.8 billion, and that was 2020. More than 100,000 employees, CBRE has been included on the Fortune 500 since 2008, ranking number 128 last year. They were voted the industry's top brand by Lipsy Company for 20 consecutive years. And actually what matters to me on the resume, they've been named one of Fortune's most admired companies. That means that people matter, and that comes from leadership. Thank you, Bob, for doing that. Nine years in a row, since 2012, CBRE Group President, uh, Mr. Selenik has been the Chief Executive Officer. He's been at the helm of the company. Prior to his rise to the top, he served in a variety of capacities at the company as the President of CBRE, Chief Financial Officer, Group President, and he covered Asia Pacific, Development Services, and if you name it, he probably led it. Bob launched his career commercial career at Trammell Crow, like half the people in this room, in Houston, where he served as an industrial leasing agent. And through 23 years in the company, he has served many, many roles. Moderating, we have the one and only, Christine Perez, the CEO, editor, even though to me she will always be the best, well, Steve Brown, the, the best real estate writer in Dallas, along with Steve Brown, in addition to presiding over the business magazine. Christine also oversees the online site, real estate, Healthcare News Verticals, and the Dallas 500. She is also an award-winning journalist. Her Uber includes a uh, columnist for a national real estate investor and DBJ. We're fortunate to have Bob and Christine here with us today. Really looking forward to your remarks, Bob. I know we all are about commercial real estate industry, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how Dallas measures up on a local, state, national, and global level. As we all know, this is the galactic headquarters for real estate, so we want to hear about that. <laughs> and um, again, welcome, and please welcome our moderator and our guest. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. All right, Bob, the last time that I saw you in person was when CBRE acquired Trammell Crow. So it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. 15 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I was just listening to Mike go uh, through your background. So you started your career uh, as an industrial broker. Did you ever think you would at one day uh, helm the world's largest commercial real estate firm? Well, I, when I started, I, I thought I'd stay in the, um, what we call in, this, in our company, and I think many companies in the room, the production side. I just assumed that's where I'd be, either as a, most likely as a developer, and I did that for many years, and then I moved over into leadership. Um, you know, I didn't know where I would end up. I'll tell you what has been a bigger surprise to me than my 
kind of career path or anybody's career path individually is what's happened to our industry. And when I started, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a little anecdote to describe um, what's happened. I was there when we took Trammell Crow Company public in 1997. Trammell Crow Company's revenues were $250 million. There just were no big global companies in our sector, and there really weren't big companies that spanned the U.S. And what's happened is the industry has consolidated massively across almost all lines of business. And we end up with large companies. CBRE is very large, but we have some great competitors, JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, Collier's, others, and there's some big investment management firms like Invesco headquartered here that have gotten bigger than any of us ever thought they would get. And then, of course, what that's meant for those of us in the industry, we've ended up in places in our careers we never thought we might get to. But the big, big, big story, I think, is what's happened in the consolidation of the industry that would have surprised anybody that started their career in, in one of these companies in 1984. For sure, and the sophistication and the level of services, the, the diversity of services, and the way of being, become corporate advisors. Well, let's start uh, with the, and by the way, I have a list of questions, but Bob uh, has told me that I can ask him anything I want, and I already did go off script once, so we'll see how this goes. But let's start with the big question on everyone's mind, and that is getting your thoughts on uh, what the pandemic recovery will look like from a commercial real estate perspective, both here locally in Dallas-Fort Worth and nationally. Maybe touching on some of the different um, you know, sectors in particular and investment sales, so it's a big question. So, you, you know, one, one of the other big changes, Christine, since um, earlier in my career, and I think most of us in here would, would have observed this, we used to think of commercial real estate as kind of one thing that moved in mass and cycled in mass, um, whether it was the sale of buildings, the financing of buildings, the leasing of buildings, the ownership of buildings. Um, and that's probably too oversimplified, but we used mm -hmm. to think of it more as moving in, in kind of in mass. And by the way, the, the, the markets that invested in us, the capital markets, particularly when we became public companies, they thought of us that way. It's just been increasingly clear over the last few years that that's far, far from what's really going on. So for instance, look at the fate of office buildings in the last 15, 18 months and industrial uh, warehouse buildings, distribution buildings of any kind, we've seen record, record performance based on almost any major rents, absorption, um, values uh, in the industrial sector, and then we've seen all kinds of downward pressure on the office sector. Um, what's going on in the industrial sector, I think, is secular, uh, and that is it's being driven by e-commerce. What's going on in the office sector is much more um, at, at the whims of COVID um, and how we will behave in mass um, when we get to the other side of COVID. Because of that, I think what we're seeing in the industrial sector, we can get our heads around more easily, is we all know that uh, e-commerce is here to stay and it's gonna grow like crazy uh, for the foreseeable future. By the way, traditional bricks and mortar retail is not going away, I believe that deeply. That's another, we could talk a long time about that. But e-commerce is gonna grow. And as a result, um, every type of distribution space is gonna grow with it. Uh, but offices, we all have our view, right? Mm -hmm. And we're, our, our views, what I think today is different than what I thought six months ago and different. And by the way, if we were holding this 
event in New York City, it would be a little bit different than it here is here in Dallas. And if we were in Taipei, where they never went home, it would be radically different than we are here in Dallas. So I think, I think the fact of the matter is we don't quite know for the office product what's going to happen. But my guess is it's going to be closer to coming back to where it was than we think. I, be, I believe, for instance, that um, most companies will have some portion of their uh, work life from home now because we've learned what we can do with Zoom and other technologies, Microsoft Teams, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been some really good stuff about that. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that appreciates the fact that our air is cleaner because we're driving less and uh, the time we save by doing that. But the fact of the matter is people are going to mostly come back because of the need to collaborate, the need to solve problems, the need to bring young people on board and get them up and running, the, the basic social desires of human beings. Um, we're going to be more spread out. When people do come back to the office, they'll come on most likely the same day, not different days, so their occupancy won't be spread evenly across the week. And then the underlying economy is going to grow. So I think, I think office will come back closer to where it was than it was before. I think retail will start to come back. I think there'll be a, a real spike in retail at some point. And um, I think Dallas, Texas is going gonna, is gonna to continue to be one of the fastest growing commercial real estate communities in the United States and in the world. And that there's all kinds of anecdotal and um, uh, data-driven evidence to support that view with the companies coming in here. Um, uh, so I think, I think all of us that do business here in Dallas are very well placed. For sure. Do you think that retail is going to bounce back because of that, of the experiential nature of it, or what do you? Well, it's all. It is about experience, and I always. I, I, there's a couple things that, I, of course, COVID has changed so much. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we talk about e-commerce, a lot of it centers around the younger generations, and they, you, you know, they're the click and buy generations, and, and it's all true. It's all correct. I've got a couple millennials in my family, and I watch what they do, and they're a little different than my generation, but. The fact of the matter is, um, we also talk about the trends in housing, and of course we've, we've moved a little more to the suburbs and a little out of the, less in the metro areas, but there's this long-term trend of urbanization, and there's this long-term trend toward dense housing and multifamily housing, and that is really appealing to young people. And for the many people in the room that are involved in the multifamily housing businesses, we are in a very big way. Um, you know you can't have successful multifamily housing without what we call amenities. And amenities are retail, mm -hmm. and it's bricks and mortar retail. And uh, the most successful projects are proximal to great retail. And that's a bit of a proxy for what human beings want. They want places to go. It'll change over time, but um, we're going to always have grocery stores, gyms, restaurants, bars, um, shops that are interesting that you can't get the same experience um, by going online. Um, so I think I, I think e-commerce is going to continue to grow, but I think bricks and mortar retail is going to be a very very real thing as long as human beings are still kind of what we are. We're not evolving that rapidly. <clears throat> well, it's good news for uh, Dallas, where uh, as as they say, or at least was said in a movie once, shopping is a feeling. Um, so do you have any thoughts on, in terms of office demand, urban versus suburban? Um, well, again, I, I, I think that's going to 
I have some thoughts. It's a lot of it's shaped by my current experience. The, the, I, let me make a broader point here. One of the hardest things any of us have to do in business is to think clearly and to figure out what's impacting our thinking at any mm -hmm. given point in time. We're all still being really, really heavily impacted by COVID. And um, we don't know how we, we're gonna think when we get to the other side of COVID. Um, but I suspect when we get to the other side of COVID, we'll get back to where we were, uh, far more closely to where we were than we thought. And yes, technology will have changed some things. Tech, it just moved, you, you know, the notion that we got 10 or 20 years of technology gains in, in a year, it's probably overstated, but we might have got five years of gains in a year. And, um, and so, yeah, we're going we're, we're gonna to keep some of what we learned in COVID, and we're going to have more flexibility for people and uh, less commuting, but we're going to have an awful lot of what we had before. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I think, for instance, um, we were all headed toward a place where uh, buildings with great infrastructure were becoming more and more prominent. I can tell you for our own company, great building systems, um, clean air, uh, good flow, elevators that were better than we ever had before. All of that was becoming more prominent. Well, it's going to be even more prominent now. Mm -hmm. um, but we were headed that way anyway. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we've been back uh, for about a month now, and our official return date is um, June 1st. Yeah. And, uh, but it's remarkable. There was a rough reentry for sure, but it's remarkable how much comes back like muscle memory. Yeah. And you know, you're talking about not much will change, not much has really changed uh, in our space. And yeah, the other thing I'll say, and this is just the way human beings are, right? So we're all watching each other. Right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm concerned about for our company is I really worry about our young people, not just uh, our young people feeling good and being happy and being on a good career path, but our young people's opinion of us as a company mm -hmm. and the way we lead the company. And so there's this thing you have to deal with, which is um, what do the young people want? Mm -hmm. What do they want now based on what, are they, what they're hearing from other young people and what's going on in their companies? And what are they going to personally want when we get to the other side of COVID? Those could be two very different things. Yeah. Um, you, you know, with all the communication that we have now, which is so much faster and so much more um, uh, big, broader, faster, omnipresent, the inbound that young people get, because they do do a better job than people in my generation, I think in general, of panning the news from all these different sources, social media and otherwise, they're getting bombarded by, this is the way it ought to be, this is what's going on in our company, and then they have their own personal thing, which mm -hmm. is, God, I gotta worry about my career, and I do have to make a living, and by the way, it isn't all that fun sitting at home, or, or maybe they're not sitting at home alone, maybe it's even worse, maybe they have a one-bedroom apartment with a roommate, yeah. and they're both trying to do Zoom calls from the same room, blah, blah, blah. And so they're gonna get to this other side of the thing and they're gonna say, well, wait a minute, what about my real personal circumstance? What works well for that, independent of what I've been hearing? And as we make our decisions, we worry about that because we gotta, we gotta address what they want in the short run and we gotta address what we think they're gonna want in the longer run. I will tell you that it's our view that a lot is gonna be rethought after Labor Day. You know, at the end of the summer, we all tend to go back to work. That happened last year for us, by the way. We had a big tick up even last year. Mm -hmm. And I think people are gonna come back to work from vacation after Labor Day. Kids are gonna go back to school. 
and everybody's going to come to grips with, okay, you know, we're now, whatever, we're going to be 65% vaccinated by then or 70%. Okay, what's really going to happen now? We're going to be thinking differently then than we are now. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly things are changing. So um, we were kind of talking about this, but many companies are trying to figure out what a return to the office will look like. I wanted to get you to see if you could talk about, uh, you know, your, your initial vision for what CBRE might look like. You guys have been a leader in hoteling and flexible workspace initiatives for quite a while now. So how is the firm personally handling and uh, what are you hearing from your clients? So we talk a lot, we do work for most of the big companies around the US and around the world and big office occupiers. We, we have a pretty intimate view as to what they're thinking. And so I would say a lot of them are like us. We have, we have about 100,000 employees, about 45,000 of them in office buildings. And um, here's, here's kind of where things are triangulating. We're going to come mostly back to the office. I'm, I'm saying this is kind of the weighted average view of our big tech mm -hmm. companies, financial companies that we work with. We're going to come mostly back to the office. Uh, we have some jobs that work really well from home, so we're going to let them, like for instance, software engineers, they can mm -hmm. track their productivity. They, they seem to do really well from home, so those groups will probably be more from home, but mostly back to the office. Um, we're going to allow some flexibility to work from home, um, we're, we're, there is this emerging thing, and by the way, it's not going to be all day every, day every day for everybody on Friday from home, right? Because that does, that doesn't, people have concluded that may be not that good a thing. So we're going to try to get people when they're in the office, we're going to try to get them there at the same time. We're going to have more social distancing. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be really super focused on the health of people, uh, particularly early on. Uh, we're going to watch what everybody else does and kind of sync up with that. We're going to be super careful about what we say because there's political ramifications in addition to practical ramifications. Um, and then as the back half of 2021 plays out, we're going to define what the future looks like. And my guess is what the future looks like is going to be for a lot of people a day a week from home with some real rules about when you can be working from home and what you do from home and, um, and a circumstance where there's real thought put into when people come into the office, where they sit, who sits by who, who's got to be in there. So if you and I work together, um, there's going to be rules put in place that it doesn't make sense for you to be home on Thursday and me to be home on Tuesday, right? Um, yeah. if, if, if we're going to be, we, we, we got to figure that all out by subgroups. So I think that's, I, I think that's where it's all headed. And, and I think it's going to be very different after, after, uh, Labor Day. Yeah. And then I think it's going to be very different again mm -hmm. come next year. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about culture because that can be such a, a powerful, uh, it, can, it can just be so powerful for companies and how difficult it is to maintain that when you're not together. And that's one of the things that we're trying to bring back is our culture because we believe it's one of our biggest strengths. And so uh, it's hard to do that when people aren't together. Very hard. And, and the parts of culture that we worry most about, everybody talks about collaboration. That's mm -hmm. super clear. Um, 
everybody talks about creative thinking. That's super clear. I think, I think that gets more buzz than anybody's been able to prove, you know, it, it, um, but it's real. The one that I find most difficult to deal with remotely by Zoom, by Microsoft Teams or whatever uh, mechanism you choose um, is problem solving. I mean, and I'm not talking about uh, we've, we've problem solving around design for a building or problem solving around uh, solutioning for a client that, need, that you're doing something for. I'm talking about interpersonal problem solving, which there's an abundance of in area organization. If you and I are going through a little bit of a rough patch in the way we work together, getting that solved by telephone or over Zoom is really hard. If you have stress among teams, um, that's hard when you're not together. And that's the part of culture that's the toughest. And the part that's um, kind of glamorous to talk about is real, collaboration, creativity, all that stuff. But the real tough stuff is the day-to-day -day realities of, um, of groups of people interacting with each other in a way that uh, makes them feel good to be interacting with each other. Yeah. All right, well, uh, real estate, of course, is cyclical, and you've been through some wild swings during your tenure in the industry. What have been some of the leadership strategies that have been key to your success, and how have they evolved? Uh, well, I commented on one of the things already. One, one of the huge kind of evolutionary things about how I think about cycles and we think about cycles is that it's not all one thing. Right? It's just simply not all one thing. And once you figure that out, you respond differently to where you deploy resources and where you cut back on resources and so forth. But if I were to, if I were to point to a couple big, um, big lessons that I've learned, and you know, actually I got a couple young, thirty-ish uh, uh, kids that I talk to this kind of stuff about at home, or by telephone or Zoom now or whatever, but uh, <laughs> um, it, it, number one is uh, the pecking order changes during downtimes. And for anybody who's um, really attentive to their career, uh, a lot of the gains are made, and I'm talking about companies but also individuals, there is a variety of responses to downturns. Everything from um, I can't make any money now, you know, and this is such a transactional industry in general, even though there's a lot of non-transactional stuff that happens. I'm going to, I'll be back when this thing is over. And um, to people that decide I'm going to grind through this and do everything I can if I can't make a nickel, I've noticed uh, over 37 years now that the pecking order changes during downturns because the people that uh, make the choice to check out kind of lose their place in line sometimes. Mm -hmm. And somebody come, and that's not a universally true circumstance, but there's enough of it that it's real. And um, those that, those that you know, have the resolve to fight their way through it, have the foresight to say every cycle has another side to it, mm -hmm. that's an opportunity for them, that's an opportunity for companies, and that's an opportunity for individuals to move up in the pecking order or to move backwards in the pecking order. That's, that's, that's a really, really big deal. Another thing that I know everybody in the room that's been around for a long time has been through is um, because there are cyclical elements to what we do, um, when things are going up, we tend to build up our resources. We, um, we invest in lots of stuff. And inevitably, we invest in some stuff that doesn't work well. 
and um, we kind of think this thing is going to go on longer than it is. Just like when it gets bad, we kind of think it's going to go on longer than it is. And we all build up too much cost. And then we, um, and then we end up cutting cost. And we probably often cut too much cost, mm -hmm. right? And so another lesson I've learned, and we really have focused on this in our company, is uh, you know, be rigorous about that cost buildup as, as you're going through the good times so that you don't have to go through the brutality of cost cutting as you get into the bad times. And it's brutal, everybody knows why it's brutal. You lay off people, et cetera, et cetera. But the other bad thing about cost cutting is you deplete resources that you wish you hadn't because you go too far. Mm -hmm. And so that, a big learning for me has been try to be really attentive to that and not overdo uh, the taking on of costs as you're going up or the cutting of costs as you're going down. That's great advice for any business. So, um, so one thing that's on the mind of uh, most readers, I mean readers, who am I thinking of? My audience, <laughs> leaders um, lately is uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'd love to get your thoughts on what real estate can do as an industry with regard to this issue and specifically what CBRE is doing. I know you've had a couple of very high profile uh, hires lately. Um, you want to talk about uh, yeah. what CBRE is doing and also the industry itself, which yeah. traditionally has not been quite diverse. Yeah, it hasn't been. And um, so I want to, for us, uh, just to kind of personalize it to our company, we have this aspiration for the company uh, that we talk about broadly. We don't talk about it that much externally. We talk about it internally. And what we say is we, we're, we're trying to build a company globally that can do things for its constituents on a consistent basis that they can't get elsewhere. <clears throat> and who are the big constituents? They're, of course, our people, our clients, our shareholders. And we've declared our communities. Now, we, a lot historically, we talked about those first three groups, even though we paid a lot of attention uh, to the other, to the communities. And we've declared that there's some core things we need to do to get there. And this has been, this is years ago, right? And one of the things is uh, that we've declared is that we're going to, we're going to have the industry's top talent. Now, we may not be alone in thinking that, but that's, that's a um, all day, every day drive for us to have the industry's top talent. And, and, and by the way, increasingly, we're, we're wanting to benchmark ourselves against our industry and against other great companies outside our industry, the S&P 500 we talk about a lot. And so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exit for just one moment the rightness of diversity and inclusion and talk about the practical benefits of it, right? If, if you have the strategy and the aspiration we have, uh, and if, if a cornerstone of that strategy is to have the very best people you can have, it's just foolish to not attack the entire population of potential people, leaders, producers, and others. And if, if, you, if you're not inclusive in terms of who you bring into the company, uh, or at least the, the pool of people you, you shop from, you just simply mathematically won't have the best people, right? You'll have the best people from some subset. So that's a practical, and that should be anybody that's, uh, that's excited about diversity should find that an exciting thought, because that's a very practical driver of diversity. Then you get to all the issues about fairness and rightness. And you know, we've got a whole history. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure most people in the room have read lots of stuff about the history of our company, or excuse me, our country, and realized that there has been a lot of unequal treatment of people over the years, big time. And, and of course, in the midst of COVID last year, we had the George Floyd thing, and that brought racial inequality to the forefront in a big way, and it was necessary. Uh, and, and so we and others are, have doubled down on our efforts in response to that. But I can tell you for our company, uh, it's a very big deal. And, and I have a personal philosophy that I, you, anybody in Seabury's leadership team knows how I think about this. There are all kinds of things you can do to get it done, right? You can run um, mentoring programs and recruiting programs and diversity and inclusion training and recruiting at diverse universities and all kinds of things. All of that's good stuff. But for us, what I've said, and, and but this is kind of consistent with <clears throat> a general philosophy we have, <coughs> excuse me, about the way we run the company. And that is what I've said to our leaders and what I've said to our board about the way I want to be held accountable is I want to see diverse people in chairs or being promoted. and and. I'm not gonna to come to the board and say, we ran this mentoring program or we ran this training program. Or, yeah, we're gonna do all that. But what I'm gonna to come to you and talk about is, here's our leadership team. Here's how many diverse people we have on it compared to how many we used to have. By the way, we've done that at the board level. And so for instance, if you look at our board now, I've got seven diverse members and 10 independent directors. My executive committee, we've got five diverse members in the executive committee out of 13. Now you say, well, only five out of 13. If you would have looked at us five years ago, it would have been nearly that good. And so what happens when you get diverse people in those positions of power? Uh, human beings do this, right? They, they're connected to other people like themselves. They will, they will create leverage for you to be more diverse. Uh, and they will put pressure on you to be more diverse. And they will be attractive to diverse people that want to come there because they'll be as we say, a proof statement, yeah, a diverse person can come here and be successful. So it's a, it's a very big deal to us. We've made a lot of progress top down uh, across the rank and file or our broad group of employees. We've made far less progress in our brokerage business, which has traditionally not been a diverse area. We've, we're really working hard to make progress and we've got a long way to go, but it's getting a lot of intention and we're spending leadership time on it, we're spending money on it, uh, we have it tied to our aspiration for success, we know we aren't gonna get there without it. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the gains we've made, I'm frustrated by the distance we have let yet to go. By the way, I know what our competitors are doing and I know what our customers are doing that we work with in the real estate business and I know that we're, we're very similar in the way we're thinking about this. There's a lot of uh, desire to make gains in this area. The progress that you've made, have you seen an impact? Is it starting to pay off? Yeah, well, I'll give it to you in, in one way. We just had a board meeting and I, every, you know, every board meeting I start by having an executive session with the board talking to them about my view of what's going on in our company. Um, we have had a pretty good run in our company for the last few years. Uh, we've had a massive change in the leadership of our company, the senior leadership of our company. If you look at, uh, the way that uh, leadership team was composed um, up till three or four years ago, I, I'm gonna say something that won't surprise anybody in this room. It was almost all white men and almost all people that grew up either as brokers or developers. So it was, a, and, and all Americans, right? Even though we're a global company, 
uh, with tens of thousands of people outside the US, um, that's what our leadership team was. And they were a really talented group of people, but their, their diversity in terms of uh, skills, in terms of global thinking, in terms of uh, training, um, ethnic diversity, every dimension. We, we were unidimensional. And so now we've got, we've got people from around the world. We've got people from different ethnic backgrounds. We've got people that came from outside the real estate industry. Uh, we got people that came from outside the real estate industry that did, did stuff in their own companies that weren't even close to working with the real estate industry. And um, I think the prospects for our company over that period of time have changed dramatically uh, for the positive. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with, it's, it's this thing we've talked about. Well, of course, if you have a diverse team, you're gonna get all these great outcomes. Well, we're, we're proving that real mm -hmm. time. And I think that's this, maybe the single biggest driver uh, to what I would, even in the last year, my view of our prospects have changed because of that. Our thinking has really opened up. We've become more attractive to some different types of people. Um, so I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer because I think it's right to start with, but I'm a big believer because it's proving to be right. It's really great to hear. So um, we touched a little bit about recruiting and retention. Locally, at least, uh, CBRE seems to be having success hanging on to its talent in Dallas. Uh, we've seen some big broker moves um, in, in the market. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to specifically to recruiting and retention. Yeah. Um, well, we have, um, let me say this, we have a lot of brokers in Dallas. We have a good number of developers, but we have more tech people um, by orders of magnitude than we do either of those two groups. We have hundreds of technology people here mm -hmm. in Dallas. And, um, and I forget the latest numbers on that, but uh, hundreds, and it may be seven or 800. Um, and so we think about that for all those people. Uh, we have a huge number of accounting people and finance people here. Um, and we got a great real estate team here, market-facing real estate team. Um, here's how we think about it for all of them. We think about it in terms of if we build, you know, one of these business buzzwords that we all use, the platform. If you build a platform where they think they can be more successful than they can anywhere else, they come and they stay, right? So if, if you look at a, a you, you mentioned a broker, so I'll take a, a broker in our company. Um, of course, it's all the things you do to support the broker with data, with technology, with uh, marketing support, administrative support. But also we talk about this. What else do we have that, that you can attract a broker with? Well, we have relationships with almost every large company in the world. We have America's biggest development company uh, that provides opportunities uh, for our brokers to work with them. We have an investment management business with $120 billion of assets under management. Um, we, have, uh, we manage 7 billion square feet of space. All of these things create opportunities for brokers, and we try to find a way to make sure that our brokers have at least some access to those opportunities. Um, and there's all kinds of things you need to pay attention to uh, in those different parts of the business, so you can't just give unfettered access to it. For instance, one of the challenges you have is you can't have 25 brokers running at one opportunity because you frustrate the client. But um, we try to have an orderly way to create more opportunity for our brokers. Um, 
maybe 20% more than they can get anywhere else. Well, if you can do that for them, this becomes a sticky place. And then in addition, if you can give them a brand they're proud of, and you can give them all the other traditional kind of support things they want, um, and it's a flywheel effect. And you have these really talented brokers that want to be part of your organization, and they build the brand massively because of their prominence in the local community. And you go right down the line. We, we, we try to do the same thing with technology people. We try to, we try to create a, uh, a, a visible platform for them where they look at it and say, it's hard for me to duplicate this elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and it's not all just about money. Of course, you have to pay people well, too. It is a, we do live in a capitalistic world, and, and you have to reward people well financially if you want them to be here in, in your company and be satisfied. Okay. Let's t talk a little bit about uh, your company's performance. So this year seems to be off to be to a great start with shares up 100% over last year. The firm's on track to meaningfully exceed 2019's adjusted earnings per share this year. What are some of the driving forces behind this? You said something really important there that's, that gets lost when people talk about results. So. Um, when we talked to the public markets about three weeks ago about our expectations, we talked about last year, but last year's not a very good comparator, right? I mean, it was a very depressed year. So we're talking in terms of 2019. That was the peak year for our company and for our industry in the history of our company and our industry. It was, 2019 was a big, big year. And it was big, not just in industrial, it was big across every line of business. It was big for occupiers. It was big for investors. Uh, and for those of us in the business, and I know there's people, other people running public companies here, you were getting to the point after years of kind of, for those of us that have been around 13 years, we always used to say, give me one more cycle, right? And then we got to the cycle like coming out of the financial crisis and it ran for 10 years and we were all like, oh my gosh. How are we going to keep growing on top of this? Well, 2019 was the ultimate year of how we're going to grow on top of this, right? And so now we're comparing ourselves not to 2020, but to 2019. Um, and what we've said is we expect, uh, we expect our business to meaningfully go through our 2019 performance, not 2020. So what's that about? Um, that's about the, what I commented on earlier, which is the whole thing doesn't cycle at once, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, of course, we're in the office building business and we're under pressure, but we're, we have a huge presence in industrial real estate. We develop it, we broker it, we finance it, we sell it, uh, we operate it for um, some of the biggest companies in the world. We have a huge multifamily business. We have a huge, um, we, we finance a lot of multifamily buildings. And so you kind of march around our lines of business, and we, we talk about the business in terms of the client types we serve, uh, the products we serve, and by products I mean office buildings versus retail, et cetera, the geographies we're in, um, and, and across all those dimensions, um, you, you're getting different things. And what we've done as a company is we've, first of all, we've built a base across all those dimensions, mm -hmm. and secondly, we've decided very, very, in a very deliberate way to focus in the areas where there's secular tailwinds. And so that has helped us get, first quarter was our biggest first quarter ever. Uh, and we've said what we've said about the expectation for the year and we, we enjoy the benefits of 
a humongous industry across multiple dimensions, yeah. and parts of it are doing extraordinarily well, and parts of it are under pressure. And that's what you're seeing come through there. And, and, we, we've, and we've tried hard to build that good team, uh, and, and we think we've made real progress there. It's really, it's really exciting. Um, so let me see what time it is, because I know we want to have some questions. OK, I have time for one more before we get to the Q&A. Um, so t talk a little bit about the headquarters move, the decision behind that, and uh, what you think uh, the role that Dallas is, plays in the uh, company's future. Yeah. So, so when we talk about Dallas or LA, you know, which was where we moved from, um, there's, there's two pieces to that, right? We have very, very large market-facing businesses in both of those cities, and we have a headquarters. And for anybody that um, invests in our company, you'll be pleased to know that both when we were in LA and now that we're in Dallas, the headquarters presence is a whole lot smaller than the market-facing presence, right? And um, so our leadership team, uh, it, for those that know our company well, won't be surprised by this, it's made up of largely of people that either came from CBRE pre the acquisition of Trammell Crow Company or Trammell Crow, Crow Company post the acquisition. Um, we, we were headquartered in LA forever. Um, I used to commute to LA, I, I had a condo, a second home, it was basically a, glorified apartment, but I did have a second home out there. And, uh, and um, we ended up over time with more critical mass of leadership here in Dallas than we did in LA. Mm -hmm. And um, I, moved, I moved to Dallas 20 years ago. And so, and I've lived here ever since. And when I was the CFO of CBRE and, and early when I was the CEO, I, I commuted a lot to LA, but I never moved there. And many from our leadership team uh, never moved there. And we just, and then I ended up in this role, and we tended to add more people here than we added there. And we decided two, three years ago that we needed to move our headquarters here. Um, but the headquarters move involved almost no people moving, because most of us were already here. Hmm. And we have, like I said, our, the dominant portion of our technology presence is here. We have lots of our finance people here. We hired a new CFO, Leah Stearns. Mm -hmm. Leah lives here now. Our chief administrative officer lives here. Mike Lafitte that runs Trammell Crow Company and our real estate investment business lives here. Chris Ludeman that runs Capital Markets live here. They were already all here. Uh, and so we just kind of named Dallas as our headquarters. I will say this, it increases the odds that we'll hire more people in Dallas going forward. But, but again, for the people that know our company, we have a lot of growth in Dallas uh, that's just gonna continue. And we have a huge market-facing business in LA that's going to, LA has been through COVID has been a spectacular performer for us. And the reason for that is, you know, Dallas has all that's going on in terms of headquarters relocation. It's just one of the most um, uh, momentum uh, benefited cities in the world. Uh, obviously there's some in Asia that are crazy benefited by momentum, but LA has been massively benefited by the development of content for media, right? All the different stuff that we see, that's the content ground zero out there. So LA and Dallas in a market-facing sense have been two of our biggest drivers globally in terms of growth. That's gonna continue in both cities. The headquarters presence here is gonna cause us to add even more finance talent, even more tech talent. Um, and that's probably gonna be the big change. But Dallas was already a mega, mega, and, and it was, in terms of headcount, already the biggest city 
in, in the world for us. Well, that may not be true. We may have a couple cities in India with more people, but it was in the U.S., uh, the biggest city in terms of headcount. Well, we love saying CBRE is headquartered here. Well, we love it too. <laughs> All right. I think we have some time for some questions uh, from the audience. And so who has a question for Bob? This is your chance. Good to see you. Is it. Do we have a, a, a handheld mic or something? We, okay. So that's one of those things that I got to be really careful about. I think we're going to be mostly back to where we were, okay? I don't think we're going to be all the way back. And um, so what do I, let, let me tell you, I've tried to, you know, with our quarterly earnings calls and, on, you, you know, when you get uh, the opportunity to talk to some of the media, you try to quantify that because you get that question. And so what I've said is, because this is the best we've been able to figure out with our research folks and with all this surveying of our clients, what I've said, I think we're going to maybe be 85% back to the office. But you go 80, and, and that on a weighted average basis. In other words, um, maybe 85% of the people hours in the office relative to where we were before. But that doesn't mean we'll only be 85% back to where we were before in terms of the usage of office space. So for instance, and I, and I said this earlier, uh, we're not gonna be going home evenly across the week. That kind of defeats the purpose of being together, right? We're gonna, people are gonna tend to be in the office at the same time, so maybe that, that whittles away at that 15%. And then I think we all are pretty confident that there's gonna be more space taken uh, per person. We were on a 20-year march, as everybody knows, to make office space more and more dense. All of this open office space and hoteling and all that stuff was in part about becoming more dense. Well, we're going to become less dense now than we were before. Um, and then you have the thing uh, with the underlying economy growing and jobs being added. And then you have the thing with some office buildings, less so maybe in Dallas because it's a newer city, but some of these older cities, you have buildings becoming antiquated and taken off the market. There's kind of a steady stream of that in cities like New York. And so when you, when you add up all that and you, you whittle away 15% and then you start adding back, kind of my comment and my view is sitting here today in terms of the use of office space, we'll kind of get back to where we were, we think. In terms of the need for office space for companies to collaborate and solve problems and bring new people on, I think we'll kind of get back to where we were before. But I don't think we're going all the way back. I don't want to, even though I and our company are hugely invested in office buildings doing well, I personally don't want to go back to where we were. I. Um, my life was less efficient, selfishly, personally, than it could have been, and then it should be going forward based on what we've learned. And uh, I think 
our company and our clients, and I think the base of office building users in general are gonna latch on to and enjoy the benefits of some of that efficiency. But I think when you add up all those different dynamics, we'll get mostly back to where we were. And I also, I'll say it again, I also think we'll think differently after Labor Day and after the end of this year and after vaccines around the world get to where they are kind of here in Texas and across the U.S. than we're thinking now. All right, here's yeah, enough. Oh, okay. No, sir. So that, that's one of the things that, you know, when I commented, or the, the question is what about global capital flows into real estate and what are we seeing? Um, that's one of the big, big changes uh, that I commented on earlier where we used to think that, um, you know, we, all of us, I, I, I started with development in Houston, Texas, in a, you know, coming into an oil bust after a huge oil boom. And, and we used to think real estate in mass kind of moved with the economy or the local uh, economy in these different markets. But what we've learned is there's some different forces at play. And so for um, uh, values, uh, you, you mentioned cap rate compression, for values of commercial real estate, um, particularly core type assets. And by the way, they don't, there's core assets all over the place. They don't just exist in the, in the gateway cities. Um, what we've learned is uh, that real estate, because it's become more transparent, more institutionalized over the years, um, it's, it's an asset class that's being uh, looked at as an alternative to stocks and bonds and private equity and the other asset classes. And the, um, and the returns on those asset classes that are available or not, and the um, abundance of capital that's available to be, to be invested in general drives the value of real estate, in addition to the specific cyclical things going on across the uh, global economy or the US economy or the local economies. And one of the things we've learned in the last, and I'm gonna say the first, I think Goldman Sachs and the Wall Street Journal came out with um, some, very accurate assessment of um, the, what was going on with real estate assets in around 2015 or 2016 that said the capital, you, you know, that the circumstances, there was concern that uh, office buildings and warehouses and other things had, had peaked in terms of their attractiveness. Um, but what got missed in that is that um, they may have been peaked in terms of their attractiveness in a traditional sense terms of rents uh, for a while or in terms of vacancies for a while and even that changed because the economy kept running but there was this massive wall of capital that wanted to be in commercial real estate and it was and, and the returns in real estate were being compared against the returns in these other areas and the and the and the when when you looked at what was happening what was likely to happening happen that was a little different than uh, the look that you would get if you looked at real estate in a traditional way so it just kept running and then we got to COVID and all the nervousness and people going to the sidelines because what was gonna to happen to values. But then there's still this 
huge wall of capital out there. And so we look at the year this year and we think the back half of this year, you're gonna see dramatic growth in the demand for investment in real estate over what it was last year. Um, and I think the, the 2019 benchmark is one that we ought to be looking at. And I think we'll be pretty encouraged about the amount of capital that goes into real estate. And of course, it's, you know, nothing moves around the world. However fast people move around the world, nothing moves around the world. Information moves around the world faster than capital, for sure. But capital may be in second place, right? It moves pretty quickly around the world. And um, so when you see markets like Dallas, Texas, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, because of the content thing I just mentioned, um, you're gonna see a lot of capital lined up to be invested in real estate. And of course, there's crazy amounts of capital that want to be in anything industrial. And, um, and I'll bet you sometime over the next year, there's going to be a whole lot of people saying, wait a minute, was there an overreaction to retail? Was there an overreaction to office buildings? Because of course, we all know that the development of office buildings and retail has slowed down dramatically, and there's going to be capital available for that uh, in, a, in abundance relative to what we might have thought. Excellent question. Questions really focus on entrepreneurship. Uh, if you were to start a commercial real estate firm that would eventually grow into someone like CBRE and you could only hire a handful of people, what sort of characteristics would you look for in candidates, whether that's communication skills, customer focus, uh, technology, etc.? And then my second question is about um, if you were to start yeah, a real estate firm what sort of risk would you take in today's market? What would you do to mitigate those risks? Um, on your first, those are two big questions, by the way. Uh, on, on, your first, on your first question, if you're saying what characteristics would I look for in people if they were just gonna be an entrepreneurial business or if they were gonna be an entrepreneurial business that ended up part of a big company? So here's, here's something I've, I've uh, learned over the years about, um, about my own career, about the people I work with, about the businesses I've been part of. Um, one of the single hardest things to do, and I'm gonna say about technology and real estate, by the way, one of the single hardest things to do is to figure out what to work on. Um, you can have super smart, super collaborative, uh, super hardworking, um, tech-forward people that struggle to get things done because they can't figure out the right things to work on. They can't figure out the right uh, digital product to develop, right? Or they can't figure out the right market to make investments in or whatever. So um, if I was starting up a company, uh, an entrepreneurially-oriented real estate company, I would want somebody in that company uh, that I thought was really good at picking what to work on, right? What, what, what product to pursue, what sub-market to pursue, whatever. Um, that, that's, that's number one. Number two, you, when you're building a business, um, 
you really, really need to be uh, have a reasonable amount of austerity. And um, so I would pick people uh, that didn't that, that knew how to get a lot out of uh, a little bit of expenditure. Um, that's really a big deal. You have to have somebody with financial sophistication if you want to build a business, you, you, whether you want to build a big or even if you keep it small, because you gotta you gotta have you, you, you gotta you gotta understand your numbers and you got to raise capital to invest, or you have to, you have to accumulate capital to invest. Um, for sure, you need to have people that are reasonably tech-savvy. And I'm not talking about buying technology to make it a technology business. I'm not talking about developing tech products. Maybe if you're a, uh, a prop tech-oriented company, or for sure if you're a prop tech-oriented company, you need to have that. But I'm just talking about you have to have people, you have to have a, some people in that little business that know how to help the group utilize the technology that's out there. By the way, there's a way, our industry is, is way underappreciated. You know, they say that commercial real estate hasn't been impacted by technology. It's just wrong. There's all kinds of, go into any, any building. I, I remember when I started, I'm, I'm on a little rant here, but I started leasing warehouses when they were only 20 foot four foot clear. We didn't have the technology to build 40, 45 foot, 50, 60 foot warehouses. We have that now with the sprinkler systems, with the super flat floors, with all that kind of stuff. Our, our industry is loaded with technology of all different types. But you have to have people that know what technology is really relevant and really to use, so I'd have that. And then um, and one, one of the things you have to do in an entrepreneurial company is you have to have a group of people that have a shared vision and are going after it hard together and not competing with each other. Um, what was your second question? <laughs> well, man, we take risk in so many different places. Um, so just let me take off the risk that, that we take, and then I'll, I'll try to... You, you take a lot of risks around people, which people you choose to run, which business. We take a lot of risks around buying businesses, which businesses. Um, we take risks around real estate development, uh, real estate investment. Um, I, I think the most important bets that I make are bets on people. Um, every, they get everything else done. and. Um, and kind of what's on my mind more than anything else now with people is um, if you got to have character, you know, all the, and we all know all that goes into character. You got to have hard work. You got to have, you got to have uh, collaboration, kind of the genes that would drive you to collaborate. But you really have to have, to get things done, whether it's a little entrepreneurial company or a company that's become large like ours, um, you have to have people that think really well. And, and the, the, what, what I would say I'm looking for in making bets on people in our company, they can do three things really well in terms of their thinking. Uh, they can create a vision for where they want to go, right? And that has all kinds of things to do with where the opportunity is, where the risks are, blah, 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 where the world's headed. That's really hard. I already commented on that, on the entrepreneurial thing. What's almost equally hard is you have to have people that can assess where you are today. 
And um, so much of the thinking that gets done about getting from where you are today to where you want to go gets um, undermined by an inability to, to clearly think about where you are today. And um, it's, that's impacted by emotions. It's impacted by politics. It's impacted by all the things we all know about what messes up human beings' thinking. And then the other thing you have to do, and our company has focused, and I would attribute a lot of the growth success we've had to this. We, we obsess over strategy. And what your strategy is your plan for um, getting to your vision from where you are. You have to have people that can think about all those uh, three things. Where we are today, where we want to get to aspirationally, and the strategy for getting from here to there. And the biggest risks I take are bets on people that can do that. Um, and then, of course, you have all the other risks that are very famous in our industry. All right. Um, so I think the, the real estate industry is doing better. So the question is, how are we going to deal with uh, interest, potential spike up in interest rates and uh, tax law changes, um, 1031 exchange changes? For companies like ours, we got the corporate tax thing and how it stacks up around the world. Um, and how's our industry doing? I, I, you know, our industry has, keeps getting better. And um, we keep getting more sophisticated. We keep getting better about developing insights about uh, all the risks and opportunities that are facing us. We keep getting more transparent. Um, we keep getting more tech-enabled. Uh, and I would say that uh, we're doing, from what I can tell, of course, I know our company better than I know others, but I, I watch our competitors and I watch our clients in the industry. I think. I think our industry is doing as well as other industries in terms of uh, paying attention to what might happen and preparing themselves for what might happen. And, um, and I think our industry is gonna perform reasonably well in that regard. And I think we're gonna get surprised in some areas and find ourselves caught off guard and penalized in some areas. Uh, and I think it's gonna be different for different companies and different um, individuals. Uh, that participate in the industry, but I think we're doing. I think we're doing pretty well. I, I think this industry has um, been one of the. Of course, there's technology and all the crazy stories in technology that are so famous and we all know. But relative to the industries that have that have been around and in the mainstream, and during my career and during the last decade of my career, I think this industry has done really, really well with those things. I'll give you a, a super prominent example. Um, and there are plenty of people in the room that will remember this. Um, the way we used to capitalize ourselves to create new product in this industry was um, crazy, 
right? I mean, the whole industry was at risk all the time because of the amount of leverage we used and the way we backed up that leverage. Our industry is pretty thoughtfully capitalized now. And uh, the lack of transparency we had back then uh, that we've corrected for uh, has led us to a place where there's a lot less overbuilding now than there ever was before. So uh, I, think, uh, I, think, I think we're reasonably well positioned to deal with those circumstances as they unfold. All right, well, I have just two quick final questions for you, Bob. The first one is, what has you most excited about the future? Um, well, it's all about human beings, right? I mean, in the end, everything we're talking about is about human beings, how they think about things, where they decide they want to go, and how they get there. Um, what's pretty exhilarating to me about the city we sit in, the industry we're in, the country we live in, and, and I think the world we live in, even though we have a lot of problems, there's always been a lot of problems, there's a lot of resiliency being demonstrated right now. And, um, and there's a real fight to be resilient. Um, and I, I, that surfaced over and over through the history of mankind. I think it's surfacing big time now um, in the COVID era. And that's, that's pretty exciting. And I think most of us in the room are benefiting from that, frankly. Yeah. Taught us all some great lessons, too. Um, okay, so here's a tough one. What is your favorite uh, Dallas area restaurant, and what do you order up the menu? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I do enjoy going to restaurants, and <laughs> Dallas has a lot of good yeah. ones. And... Um, so I'm going to name, name two. I, what my wife and I like, we like, we like to go to places. We, we kind of like neighborhoody type restaurants that are one of a kind. Mm -hmm. And we like to go to places where you have a little bit of flexibility to get known so you can customize a little bit. So two that I would mention, one, um, and the, the owner is a good friend of mine, Sevy's, I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. My wife really enjoys. And uh, Nona which I think mm -hmm. is uh, really, really good. And what I tend to order is, uh, I always order a salad. I, I mean, I'm boring as can be. Some kind of seafood and, and uh, almost never dessert, but once in a while. Once and, in a while. Uh, I, and a lot of vegetables. That's what I like. Excellent. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for all of the insights that you've shared on behalf of uh, the audience here. Thank you so much for spending this time with us this morning. So everybody wanna show our appreciation. All right, and now please welcome to the stage uh, Rena Parikh of Grant Thornton. Well, hi everyone. I, I really appreciate this opportunity to say a few words about Grant Thornton. Uh, I'm Rena Parikh, uh, I'm audit partner and also lead of our real estate and financial service practice here in Dallas. Uh, we have some of my colleagues here, including Dave Meyer, who is one of our uh, tax practice leaders. Um, we're here uh, representing Grant Thornton, uh, the proud sponsor of Track Market Matters. Um, Grant Thornton is a network of audit, tax, and advisory firms. Uh, uh, we're a global organization. We're in 130 countries with over 50,000 people. Um, we all know uh, the opportunities and challenges are abandoned in real estate practice, and uh, you know we all went through a very unprecedented time in last uh, 12 to 15 months. Um, and our goal is really to help 
dynamic organization, you know, achieve their priorities and, uh, you know, what they want to accomplish. Um, so, so if you want to, you know, if you're trying to grow your business, manage risk, manage regulations, uh, you know, our, our professionals are uh, here to help locally uh, and nationally, uh, just wherever you are or where you want to be. Uh, but once again, we are proud to partner with Track in putting together such an informative program for us today. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand over to Linda. She's going to make some closing remarks. Thank you. Well, what a day. Uh, I can't tell you. I'm almost emotional here. Um, it's so, I'm so happy to see all of you again in person. It was great to get hugs. It was great to shake hands. And uh, we've had quite a year. It seems like it's, it never occurred, frankly. And I think Mike really hit it on the head um, when he was talking about what we've all gone through in the last year. What a great way to start our year. Bob, uh, this was phenomenal. Christine, we really appreciate everything you do for us. But uh, to hear from the head of this industry is really, really a great way to kick off our year. Uh, and it's hard to believe that it's almost June and we're kicking off our year. But we are happy to do it. And I just want to also say, we, are, we have survived this past year stronger than I even imagined. And that is because of you. Because you have stuck with us. You have led. You have done some great things for our industry, for our city. We're finishing a market. We did a great food park. We're making our city better. And you all are doing that work. And that is what is so important. So I want to thank you for that. Because we did not stop. And that is important because we're going to continue growing. And we're going to continue making our community better, our industry better and stronger, as we talked about. I want to thank Mike for your steadfast leadership this year. It's been phenomenal to work with you. It always is. Every year I get a new boss, and I love them all. Um, I also want to thank Bill Colley, who's not here. He was our COVID chair. I feel bad for him because he really is a fun guy, and he really was looking forward to a fun year, and he ended up being on a computer screen all year long, uh, which was kind of sad for him. Uh, I want to also thank our sponsors, Grant Thornton and DCEO. We, we really cannot do this great, these, this great programming without you, so thank you for that. We have a lot of things going on. I hope you don't miss our podcast, TrekCast. Our last speaker was uh, Chairman um, Dan Hurwitz, who used to be the chairman of ICSC. He talked about all the things you were talking about, Bob, about retails, retails back, uh, brick and mortar is back. So it's, it, it was really great, and I hope you listened to it. It just came out this week. Uh, we have a lot of great programs coming up. As a matter of fact, our next speaker series, Bank of Texas speaker series, will be June 23rd, right back here in this space. Texas is a logistics hub led by uh, the um, famous Jack Fraker, who's put together a great panel on that topic. Again, you heard about that today. The Young Guns are celebrating this year and having their fundraiser at uh, the end of June, so don't forget to join them at the end of June, night at the levee supposed to be punk rock. Um, that's going to be interesting. The Van Full of Nuns will be performing. I uh, can't miss that. I don't know what color my hair will be for that event. And Mike has promised he's going to bring his London 70s look, which I'm really afraid. <laughs> uh, and then Fight Night is back. September 30th, we'll be back at the Anatole, and I hope all of you will be there. Um, I can't thank you again for what a great year we've had, even though we've been all on a commuter screen, and I can't tell you how great it is to see you. 
Have a great day. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank CBRE President and CEO Bob Salentic and DCEO Editor Christine Perez for their time. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Grant Thornton, Invoke Tax Partners, and DCEO for their support of Market Matters. Please, please make sure you subscribe to the show and follow us on social media. You'll find links to each of our accounts and podcast platforms in the show notes. And until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.